So the book of Acts is the riveting story of the early church and its spread across the Roman Empire. And it has just been, uh, so far, if you've been with us in our journey, just we've, it's been filled with the presence of God, the power of God, astounding miracles, the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, incredible community and impact, a church devoted to prayer. But beginning in the last chapter we were in, Acts 4, beginning in that chapter, there was a, another theme that in some ways is kind of a shadow theme, and that is the theme of persecution, which characterized the early church and has characterized the church, the vibrant church of Christ, to the present time. Now, it began in Acts 4, when Peter and John were arrested and they were threatened, they better stop preaching Christ. That was the first wave. And then the second wave is in our passage we're going to look at today, in the middle of Acts 5. And then the third wave, the tidal wave, will come at the end of Acts 7, where we'll have the first Christian martyr, Stephen, where Paul, Paul of Sarsus, uh, he's kind of leading the persecution charge, and then he gets uh, converted on the road to Damascus, and he becomes persecuted. Uh, this past week when we were in Israel, we were way up in the Golan Heights, which is northeastern Israel, and you can, you're just a few hundred yards from the country of Syria, and we looked out there, and we could, you know, in the distance would be the road where Paul was headed from Jerusalem to Damascus, and where he got converted, and where he's had such impact uh, uh, through the rest of his life. Now, in Acts, end of Acts 7, when the tidal wave hits, the church scatters, and for the rest of the book, there's really going to be persecution, but especially in the last eight chapters, when Paul himself is arrested and sent to Rome, sent to the emperor. He survives that case, but later he'll be beheaded for Christ. What we need to understand, church, is that since that time, since the book of Acts, there has always been persecution of the church around the world. Some places it has been more subtle and mild, like here in the United States, uh, where it's more verbal or maybe being excluded or something, but in other places around the world, many places, it is more intense with imprisonment, uh, uh, beatings, torture, sometimes execution. But we're going to ask the question today, what is God's perspective on persecution? What, what should, how should we think about this around the world? I am hoping that when you look in the newspapers or at the Wall Street Journal or whatever periodical you get news from, that when you see countries like Iran up there, you won't think first of evil ayatollahs, but you'll think first of the persecuted, thriving church in those lands. And so we're going to get a little overview at the end. But first, let's dive into the passage. The passage, um, early in it, a part that I'm not going to read, but I'm just going to uh, touch base on it now. The religious leaders are arrested. Uh, of Israel, the Sanhedrin, they arrest the apostles. This time, not just Peter and John, but all 11 who are surviving. Judas is gone. And we read in verse 19 of chapter 5, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And so can you imagine this? This really happened. They're in prison. Sometime in the middle of the night, an angel appears right there and releases them, opens the doors, must have blinded the guards and released them. But rather than them going off into the hills to hide, the angel tells them, you go right up into the Temple Mount where we were last week, a huge area up there. You know, you go into the, the, the jaws of the lion, and you teach Jesus. And that's what they've been doing. They've been told, don't preach Jesus. And they persist because they're obedient to God, not man. And so 
They go to the, to the temple press. Meanwhile, the religious leaders gather the next morning, call and send for the apostles to be brought here for trial. The, guard, the, the soldiers who go to get them are completely astonished. They're not there. Nobody's there. And then the report comes in, oh, they're up on the Temple Mount preaching Jesus. So they went and get them and bring them to the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, 70 religious leaders, that's the supreme court of the land. They have the power to execute them as they executed Jesus. So this is life and death situation. Now, all of that is just background to our passage. I'll pick it up there in Acts 5.27. Let me read it if you'll stand in honor of God's Word. Acts 5.27. Let me read it. So they just brought in to the Sanhedrin. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is God's word, church. Please be seated. All righty, one of the classic verses about the Christian citizen and government comes in 529 at the start of that passage when Peter responds to them saying, you better stop preaching Jesus. Peter says in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. Now, that is a key biblical principle about government. You know Romans 13 teaches that we as Christian citizens should obey the government because every government is from God. We obey the government until it becomes sin to obey the government. We ought to pay our taxes. We ought to uh, follow the laws of the land. But if the, the laws of the land ever said something like this, uh, Woods Edge, y'all got to start uh, performing uh, same-sex marriages, then we disobey. It's just clear we obey the government unless it is sin to obey the government. And Peter announces that in front of the people who could execute him. So this is life and death. Peter continues in 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. He's, he doesn't mince words. You killed him, God raised him. Now, do you see Peter is so different than he was when he was betraying Jesus the night he was gone. We were up at the place where, where Peter was, had denied Jesus literally, and, and we just remembered how he just, before serving girls, he, he was denying Jesus. Because he didn't want to die also. But now he's completely different. He's seen the risen Christ. He's filled with the Spirit. And he's completely different. When you and I come to Christ, when we surrender our lives to the power of the Spirit in us, we ought to be different. Because we serve the risen Christ and the Spirit of God is inside us. Now, Peter continues, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. This is no mere man. He's exalted to the right hand of God in heaven to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are eyewitnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. 
We, this is not religious theory. This is eyewitness. We have seen him. And they would give the rest of their lives to him. And all of them except John would be martyred for their faith. We're witnesses, and so is the Holy Spirit, notice, to those who obey him. Now, you've got the Spirit at the moment you become a Christian. But if you want the Spirit's power in your life, the Spirit's uh, active role leading you, filling you, guiding you, we need to obey the Lord. We need to be surrendered. If there's any uh, sin in your life, points of rebellion, um, God's not going to fill you with His Spirit. I don't mean that we're perfect. Of course not. But I mean there's no area of unsurrender. Lord, have all of me. Have all of me. And God will fill you, empower you, lead you, walk with you, guide you with His Holy Spirit. Now, the Sanhedrin is the power lead of the nation. They're not used to people like Peter, especially a fisherman like Peter, saying, you know, we got to obey God rather than men. And they respond in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Can you see their faces? I mean, they want blood here. And they would have had blood here, but God prevents that in the most unusual way. This is what happens. There's a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel is highly respected, and he, in fact, was Paul's teacher, Paul's mentor, while he's a non-Christian. This is what Gamaliel says in verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Now, isn't that interesting? Here is somebody who did not believe in Jesus, who was confident that this plan, this whole thing was of man, that you leave them alone, it's going to die out because Jesus, their leader, has died no problem. Did it happen that way? Oh, no. It spread throughout the Roman Empire, turned the Roman Empire upside down, and it has continued to spread throughout the world 20 centuries later so that there are millions, untold millions of people like you and I who will give our entire lives in eternity for Jesus Christ. It did not die out. And uh, Gamaliel, God used him to spare their lives at this point. Now, later, all except John would be martyred. So just because God spares you at one point doesn't mean you get a, a, a pass on suffering or persecution. So verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Look at the word beat up there. I love it how the New Testament, especially in the Gospels Acts, is so understated. You know, they, they never bring any attention to the pain of Jesus on the cross. Beat them. Don't think about three or four good licks like you maybe got as a child. They were beaten with the Roman cat-o'-nine-tails, 
leather strips embedded with glass and stone that would rip your uh, back apart and there'd be blood everywhere. And that's how they were beaten. So it wasn't a mild thing. But yet in verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to, dis to, worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Is that how you take suffering? <laughs> Who was that? Was that you? <laughs> yeah, Raymond. Um, one of the things that frustrates me about myself and about the, the church today is this. The Bible repeatedly tells us to rejoice always, give thanks in everything, to trust the Lord, rejoice, give thanks. And that's what they're doing here when they're beaten to a pulp. And we get a flat tire and we're grumbling and complaining and feel like the end of the world's here. And it should not be. You've got health issues, you've got problems at work. Of course, this is life in this world, not in heaven. But the Bible tells us to rejoice. That is, uh, not that you like those things, but you're going to trust the Lord. Lord, thank you that this happened because you're going to bring good out of it for me. Church, that is how we respond to all suffering, big or little, including persecution. And so that, that's how God's people respond. Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that's what the apostles do right here. They rejoice and be glad at what God is doing. Now, final note in verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They did not stop one bit. Every day they're out proclaiming Jesus. Now, they meet the temple and they meet from house to house. We also see this in Acts 2, the, the great summary. We see the same thing here. That the church, if it's bigger than a small group, it needs to meet both for large group celebration and worship and small group uh, mission and community and discipleship. And that's the way the church did in the early church. The church in Jerusalem now was, what, 15,000 people? Maybe more? It's huge. And you think, can they all meet together? Well, a few days ago we were up on the Temple Mount and I specifically thought about how many people could meet up here. Well, the Temple Mount is 15 acres. You know, that's about a fourth of our property here. It's huge. 100,000 people could cram in there. Certainly, 15,000 could, could cram up there. And they met together regularly for worship celebration and the teaching of God's Word. And they met from house to house for community and discipleship and, and mission. We've got journey groups. We've got all kinds of groups. Men's groups, women's groups, regen groups that we're so excited about. God's been using those, just started. Not too late to get in those. In fact, you can go to those at any time. Journey groups in our neighborhoods so we can together reach our neighborhoods. We're not alone in the places where we live. So God uses both the large group and the small groups. Okay, that was it. That was the second wave of persecution. Now, let me pause halfway through the message. We're not going to have a 15-minute message this morning. I'm not that tired. Um, what we're going to do is I want to give you an overview of what is happening around the world because we need to have God's perspective on persecution because you're not going to get it in the Houston Chronicle, the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, CNN, any other media, but we get it from the Bible and from 
what God is doing with the church around the world. So what is God's perspective? How should we think? How should we respond to the worldwide persecution? Well, let me start off by telling you a story. This is Phil and Rose coming up uh, on the screen and their daughter. And, uh, okay, Phil and Rose, here's their story. They go to Wood's Edge, and they uh, were raised Muslim in Iran. They are refugees to Turkey some years back, six, seven years ago, ago or so. And while they're in Turkey, they come to Christ. And then a couple of years later, they move to Houston. They live in southwest Houston. And we've been friends with them through uh, Gary and Kelly Sharp in our church that has regular ministries with uh, Muslim background folks from Iran, Iraq, places like that. And they've just been great friends of our church. And, and recently, actually, while I was in Israel, I think, I think Phil sent me a text and said something like, you know, we've been praying for a year or so, and, and really God wants us to, to make church, Woods Edge, our church family, so they're going to be driving across town for that. Now, here's, here's the story that um, Phil uh, said to me recently. He said, uh, he sent a text to a number of us, and he said, hello, all believers. One of our brothers in Christ, Paul, has been arrested by the Iranian regime in Iran, and we don't know where he is. Please pray for this brother. So he's arrested. They don't know where he is. A few days later, Phil texted me, Hello, dear brother Jeff. I would like to update you on, brother, on our brother Paul. They jailed him, but God has shown him that he will be serving the Lord in the jail. Please put this brother in your church's prayer, and I'd encourage you to uh, be praying for him. We, we could put his picture up there, but we don't want to do that. This service is online. So uh, please pray for him. Um, later, Phil texts again. I think I, I responded, tell me more about Paul. And Phil texts me this. He said, he was a dedicated Muslim, but God touched and saved him. He has been spreading the word of God to the cities and villages. He is on fire for Christ. He said, he and I were born in the same village in Iran. We have been reading the word of God and praying together by Skype. He has been spreading the word of God in so many places. He has discipled other new believers Hour by hour, Persians, that is Iranians, Persians are coming to faith, glory to God. And then he continues, there is a huge spiritual awakening now in Iran. Brother Paul is bold like the Apostle Paul. The church in Iran is scattering, and this gives me a living picture of the early persecuted church. And that, that's what we're going to see in Acts 7 and 8, how the church is scattered with the persecution. And he's saying, that's happening in my home country today. Then he tells me this. He says, God, has blessed brother, God had blessed Brother Paul early in his life financially, but he left everything behind and followed the Lord. This is the third time he has been arrested. And Paul had shared with Phil, uh, and you can guess that Paul is probably not his given name. Paul had shared with Phil, he shared this about his first arrest. The interrogator during his first imprisonment said to him, don't you know we have the power to do anything to you and keep you in jail for good? And Brother Paul replies, you have no power. Then he looks up to heaven and says of God, he does. Now, does that sound like Jesus Christ in John 18 to you? It does to me. You have no authority except God has given it to you. And that's how Paul responded. Later that same afternoon, the interrogator had to come back to the room and say to Brother Paul, you are free to go. <laughs> and and um, Phil adds in his text, you see the power of God. Now, church, I, I wanted to share that little anecdote. Please pray for Paul because we got to know how the, how the gospel is thriving in so much of the Muslim world, including Iran. Uh, Phil and Rose are in this service. Would you all stand with your daughter? Be great with your daughter. That'd be great. 
Okay, daughter's not here. That's Phil. That's Rose. Um, maybe some of you around them can meet them afterwards. They're still serving the Lord and particularly the persecuted church. Now, what I want to encourage us as a church, when we think of Iran, when you see Iran in the newspaper, this is what you tend to think. Oh, man, this is a mean uh, regime, mean ayatollahs. They're trying to get nuclear weapons. They're doing horrible things. Yeah, I get that. But why not let's start with the basic fact that God is at work saving dear, precious Muslim people and bringing them into the gospel. Why don't we lead with that? And let the secondary thought be, yeah, there's a dictatorial regime there persecuting Christians and others. When we see in the newspaper, on the news, uh, the country of Iran, we now know too much not to immediately go, man, there is a thriving church in Iran, and we need to pray for them. Lord God, please be with those people. Please be with our brothers and sisters over there. And that's how we ought to see the news about so many other places around the world. You're not going to get that from the secular media. We get that in the Bible and from Christian sources around the world. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, All who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In this country and in many countries, it is more subtle and mild than intense. It is more verbal. Do you remember Matthew 5, 11, I said earlier, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. I mean, sometimes persecution is verbal. Sometimes you're being excluded at work. You're being held back or neighbors kind of badmouth you because then those guys are crazy Christians or something. Now, if you're not getting persecuted at all, then uh, you're being too hidden. Uh, you need to speak up and not hide your Christian faith. And, and, and for me, uh, that's a bit convicting. Because I, I need to be more bold about my Christian faith. Maybe I get too little persecution. But uh, if we stand up for Christ, there will be persecution. And our country mild so far. Now, I know it's getting more and more hostile to the gospel. And that uh, more and more anti-Christian. But we're not being thrown in prison and being beaten and, and executed. It might come to that. And there's some good and bad in that. Not completely a bad thing. But... Uh, it's not there now. Now, around the world, there are 245 million of our brothers and sisters, like Paul, um, living with intense persecution. Now, that's a lot of people, isn't it? 245 million. What's that, about 10 Texases and, uh, you know, two-thirds of the United States? That's a huge number. And we need to be aware of that. And, and, and you need to be aware that your church, that we together as a church, we're very involved with the persecuted church. What countries are we talking about? Well, here are 10 countries going to be going up on the screen. First is North Korea, the worst persecution for some time now. And you should know there is a small, I think 300,000, but vibrant church uh, in Korea. And many of them are in jail for the rest of their life unless uh, there's a big change there. Afghanistan um, has had intense persecution. Somalia, you know that country, right by Ethiopia has been horrific. Libya, in North Africa, Pakistan, and we've got a woman here from Pakistan. We have folks from a lot of these countries. Pakistan, Eritrea, also by Ethiopia, Sudan on the other side of Ethiopia, Yemen across the, the Gulf from Ethiopia, Iran is number nine still, and then uh, India. Now, when you look at those names up there, whenever you see any of those countries in the media, 
don't think first about the political regime and that stuff. Those are not the key issues. The key issue is what is God doing? And in every one of those countries, the church that does exist is thriving and vibrant and all in for the gospel because that's what happens when there is intense persecution. And that raises a serious disadvantage for you and me because we don't have that level of intense persecution. This is what happens in areas in where Christianity uh, doesn't have enough persecution or doesn't have enough poverty is that we tend to be lukewarm, casual, comfortable, more focused on this world than the next world, more focused on things and houses and money and things like that rather than the issues of eternity. It doesn't have to be that way. We can live in a country without intense persecution and be all in for the gospel. But we cannot, we cannot be casual, convenient, comfortable, lackluster, lukewarm Christians when we've got brothers and sisters who are giving their lives for Christ around the world. You should know that your church, our church, together, we're very involved with the persecuted church around the world. Those 10 countries, if you could put them back up there again. I don't know if we're involved with uh, eight of them, nine of them. You know, we can't go into North Korea now, although we do have somebody that's been going in North Korea some. Uh, we're involved with all those countries. Usually, this is what we got. We got ministry partners that might be in a safe enough place in the Middle East, and they'll make forays into Iran or other places. We've got a ministry partner out of Ethiopia. Spent five weeks, he and his wife with us, five weeks during Christmas. He, he is in the worst, some of those worst countries around Ethiopia. And uh, we support, we pray, we partner, um, we visit um, these ministry partners. And you're involved with it. Now, I know all of us are not firsthand called to persecution ministry. I'm not. But all of us can pray, and all of us, as we give here to Wood's Edge, you're involved with it, and good for you, because we do not want to uh, forget our brothers and sisters with great suffering. Let me just mention to you some of the people in our, in our church who are stateside right here at Wood's Edge who are involved with persecution church, persecuted church. Now, we've got some ministry partners overseas, various places, but besides that, uh, Gary and Kelly Sharp. Gary and Kelly, are you in the room right now? They often come to the third service. They've been working with Iraqi and Iranian uh, refugees for a long time. Fat Fallon Masudera on our staff team. She's full-time with immigrant ministry. And some of those are from persecuted world. Um, Gary and Kelly Sharp. Sergey Kirpinov, Ivan Bikov. Sergey and Ivan, are you all here in this room now? No telling where they are. They're all over the Russian-speaking world, very involved with the persecuted church. They themselves got kicked out of Uzbekistan for the gospel. Wives didn't even know where they went. They've been here uh, 12 years. Sergey is an elder here. Yvonne's very involved. They're like modern-day Apostle Pauls. They're just incredible, doing all kind of ministry around the world. Don and Becky Donaldson, they come to the third service, started up the, a hospitality house in the Middle East. Many of the folks there came from Afghanistan, Yemen, Morocco, tough countries. A number of them were martyred during that time. 
Ken Bidgood leads the Digital Bible Society. Okay, Digital Bible Society. We've had great Bible societies around the world that have produced Bibles for centuries. But this is the main one that digitizes so we can get little microchips and using the Internet and get them into the persecuted world, China and Yemen and all over. And it's the largest one in the world, and it's a great ministry. Very involved with it. Ken Womack, one of our elders over there, he trains uh, pastors and persecuted church uh, He's, you know, he's in Indonesia, parts of Indonesia, very much persecution, India, China. Uh, can't, can't go into China right now. They're cracking down. By the way, you know, I mentioned uh, the top 10 list. India is number 10. That's very significant. They have climbed up because their present prime minister is very hostile. He wants it to be all Hindu. And so Christian missionaries are, are being persecuted and having to leave. China has moved up into the top 20, and we've had our own missionary having to leave China, and it's getting tougher and tougher. Chris, I see you there, Digital Bible Society, uh, Ken's right-hand man. Um, Guy Kasky, one of our mission pastors, I think he's somewhere in the world right now, but he's very involved with the persecuted church in Ethiopia. Uh, Daniel and Juliet Vistasian, they spent 18 years in Afghanistan doing ministry, and she even got shot in the hand with a stray bullet and some gunfire. Uh, they're back stateside now. Uh, Don Marie, where are you, Don Marie? She was in Afghanistan for several years. Um, what I want to say to you is that your church, our church, is very involved with ministry to the persecuted church around the world, and that's a good thing. Last uh, few weeks ago, I finished the book, Insanity of God, probably the top book out on the persecuted church uh, around the world now. Nick Ripken, he's a good friend of Guy Kasky on our staff. Uh, guy was talking to Nick recently, that's a pseudonym, and he's going to come here in about a year. I'll get him on Sunday morning and some, some extra stuff. He was in Somalia a long time, and um, a lot of ministry there in a tough, tough climate. Uh, now he's kind of worldwide with the persecuted church in various ways. Uh, this book was so powerful. Uh, just one story. There are dozens of stories. Where's one story? Okay, Nick Ripkin is in like Thailand. And he's meeting with believers over there. And he gets this odd email from a European doctor he's never met who's in Central Asia. So when you think Central Asia, you're thinking of Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, you know, the stands, tough area. So he's there as a medical doctor. He sends an email to Nick Ripkin and says this. He says, I've never met you, but I know about your work with persecution. I really believe you need to come here. And he names his little town in Central Asia. And Nick Ripkin, you know, he had his schedule, he had his ministry, and he said, oh, thanks, I appreciate it, but I've got stuff here. Well, the doctor would not give up. He wouldn't let it alone. He emailed him a second time, third time, fourth time, and just, he was annoying to Nick Ripkin, and he, and he basically said, wrote to the European doctor, look, leave me alone, I'm not coming. But at the same time, all of his ministry opportunities in, in Thailand were drying up. And he finally concludes, maybe God does want me to go to this little city in Central Asia. And so he buys tickets and flies in there. This is what happens. He flies in into this, uh, well, he flies into a big city, then a smaller plane to a smaller city. He gets off the plane, you know, middle of nowhere, and there is a, clearly a European doctor here. Standing near them are five clearly Central Asian looking like Muslims. He assumes they're together. And that's why he's there. He goes over there. They don't know each other from Adam, never met each other. Uh, the doctor, in fact, uh, is shocked that he, he doesn't know them already. And he's got to go some other place. So 
He leaves, and, and Nick Rifkin is left there with these five looking like Muslim men. And not sure if they're about to jump him or something like that. Well, they begin telling him a story. And this is the story. They each one independently didn't know each other. They had dreams and visions about Jesus. That's how 80% of Muslims around the world are coming to faith. And they're coming by droves. Okay, they all have these dreams and visions. And then after that, miraculously, each one obtains a copy of the Bible. They read it several times each. And they, each one, independently become followers of Jesus. And their families disown them, and they have to flee across the border to this place they are now. And again, miraculously, they, they kind of meet up with each other and find out they're all believers in Jesus. And in the Muslim world, you've got to be very secretive and private about that stuff. But they all kind of find each other. And this is what they do. Every night from 12 midnight, they go to a third-story small apartment must be one of theirs, and from 12 to 3, they pray and read Scripture and worship together on the slide. That night, when they were praying, that morning, that same morning that he meets them, God spoke to them through the Spirit, put on their heart very clearly, y'all go to the airport right now, and there will be a white man getting off the plane. He is here to help you. And there he is. And God had orchestrated finally enough to get him to go. And he spent several days with them helping them. Uh, the book's got all kind of stories like that. God is at work in the Muslim world like nobody's business. And, and all parts of the persecuted church around the world. I mean, the biggest revival in history happened in China after the persecution really started in 1949. At one point, a man said, an Eastern European believer said to Ripken, I take great joy that I was suffering in my country so that you could be free to witness in your country. And then he raised his voice and said, don't ever give up in freedom while we would never have given up in persecution. That is our witness to the power of the resurrected Christ. Church, how do we respond to persecution around the world? Knowing there is more martyrdom than ever, there's more persecution than ever. How do we respond to that? Three simple ways. One way is for all of us, and that is we pray for them. We do not pray that the persecution would stop. They don't want that. Church is alive and thriving with persecution. Pray for them courage and faithfulness in the midst of the persecution. None of them are asking to stop persecution. That's one. We can all do that. Secondly, for some of you, a handful of you maybe, you don't have a ministry. You've got 10 people in your local church that are very involved with persecuted church, join one of them. I mean, get involved with them as a ministry. Uh, there are ways to get involved in firsthand ways to help some of these ministries. That might be your calling. It's not mine. It might be yours. If you don't have a ministry, you need one because you're never going to grow and experience all the life without one. Find one. Maybe this is it. Now, here's the third one, and this is the big one. This is what the message is about for me. Church, we got a problem. We don't have much persecution here, not like much of the world. And so the mass of the modern-day American church is six miles wide and one inch deep. It's comfortable. It's casual. It's focused on the world rather than God. Very little giving, very little um, all-out obedience, divorce rate just as high as in the uh, the rest of society, we do not have a virile, active 
vibrant, zealous church all in for the gospel. And it must not be that way. There have been plenty of believers who've lived in societies like ours who are all in. Now, can you imagine getting up at 12 midnight, going to a friend's apartment and spending three hours in worship every night? Gulp. I mean, you don't have to do that, but can you at least take 30 minutes or an hour every day and meet with the Lord in your own house? Can you at least give 10% to the Lord? Can you at least obey what God commands us to obey? Whatever our society is saying. If they are going all in at the risk of life and death, we too, in our context, must be fully devoted to Christ. Because he is worthy of our obedience and our commitment and our surrender. He is worthy. And if we had a thousand lives, it would be too few to give to Jesus. But we just got one. Don't waste a day. Don't live for this world. Live for the next world. Stand with me. Friend, if you're in the room and you've never trusted Christ, this is your moment of eternity. This is your decision point. Breathe a prayer. Jesus, come and save me. I need a Savior for my sin. Believer, none of us are perfect, but we can all be surrendered. Maybe God is pointing out an area of your life that, that he's saying to you, give it to me. Give it to me. If so, give it. It is our privilege. We rejoice to suffer for the name. Lord, give us grace. Thank you for the privilege. In Christ's name.